Hi everyone, this is Alicia Halliday and welcome to the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. When it comes to interventions, especially early interventions, there's a lot of movement towards putting caregivers in charge. This makes a lot of sense from a logistical standpoint. Who spends more time with babies, infants, and toddlers than their parents or other caregivers? Wouldn't you want interventions that were designed to be delivered in a clinic to be delivered in a variety of real-life environments? I haven't been shy about saying that I worry that this sort of reliance on parents and caregivers puts a lot of burden on these already overstressed, overworked, and overworried parents. And most parents don't spend years learning how to deliver these interventions, and that's why they might be subject to variability. They do show some positive results when it comes to child outcomes. There's variability in the magnitude of these positive effects, mostly because community-based interventions are getting better and better and kids are able to show marked improvement in both groups. Also, parents vary on their ability to deliver these interventions in the way they were designed and delivered. That is absolutely understandable, but it does contribute to the magnitude of the effect, but they do seem to help. There are some unrecognized benefits to caregiver-delivered interventions that are worth noting. Thank you to a group at Virginia Polytechnic Institute who organized, categorized, and rated this evidence. These are potential improvements in the family unit, like cohesiveness and family relationships. This is another added benefit to these interventions. So there's a combination of reasons why these interventions are helpful, even if they don't produce drastic changes in child outcomes. And also, these interventions are not for everyone, but based on your access to getting trained for them, they may be helpful. In this review, the authors included 16 total studies based on their selection criteria. Now, these were already published studies. This wasn't new data. These selection criteria were studies that mentioned a caregiver-administrated intervention to studies that mentioned family outcome or family relationship outcome. It was published in a peer-reviewed journal. It wasn't a single subject design or case study. They had to be published in English, under 18 years of age, and included family members. Also, if the study included individuals with other disabilities, it also must have included people with autism. Caregivers needed to be active participants in the intervention, and finally, the ASD participated in the treatment. So 16 really isn't that many, considering they started with about 5,000 potential studies. After they categorized them and sorted them, they divided the intervention into two types, which are easy to get confused because they're so similar. So I was glad to see that they applied a definition so everybody could understand what they were and what their benefits could be. The first was caregiver-mediated. This means that the caregiver, usually a parent but not always a parent, was either part of the intervention or present for most of the intervention sessions. The other is called caregiver-training. These studies included interventions in which caregivers learned specific strategies for working with their child with autism, and they engaged in a more professional instruction than in just mediated and applied caregiver-child interactions. So you can imagine the caregiver training is a little more intense than the caregiver-mediated interventions, and it turns out that may make a difference, at least on some outcomes. As a reminder, this isn't new data, it's a review of existing data. So there's some variability across the studies and the effects were not enormous, 
But this summary and review allow the opportunity to examine findings that used astringent criteria to allow their inclusion to begin with. While the majority of reviewed studies had a positive impact on family-based interventions and family functioning and relationships, some actually reported neutral or equivocal findings. Some of the qualitative results actually suggested potential negative impacts. The findings suggest that caregiver involvement in autism interventions can positively impact not just the child, but the family as a whole in terms of functioning and relationships, even if the family characteristics and the relationships were not specifically targeted. You heard me just say qualitative results suggested potential negative impacts. Let me get into that. One study in the UK, which basically asked families their opinions about how they felt about the intervention, a very small percent stated their relationship with the sibling actually deteriorated. Some of the mothers and fathers said their relationship between each other deteriorated. Specifically, parents noted that siblings enjoyed the involvement in the therapy and could learn about autism. However, the siblings said that they didn't feel like they got enough attention and had to stay out of the way during intervention and the family did less things together. So it's not all wine and roses. Were there differences between caregiver-mediated and caregiver training? Yes. Training interventions had a positive impact on the family outcomes, where caregiver-mediated interventions didn't really do that. These family outcomes were things like adaptability, cohesion, and family functioning. Family functioning means specifically helping family chaos, empowerment, and even parenting styles. It seems that learning new skills, even when the family dynamics were not the main focus of the intervention, has positive impacts on family dynamics and functioning. This doesn't mean that everyone in the caregiver-mediated interventions didn't show positive findings in family relationships. Just on the whole, when they summed them up and compared them, there really wasn't much of a difference. However, these caregiver-mediated interventions were not total failures on family outcomes. They had positive relationship outcomes like responsiveness, affect, achievement, and directiveness. This isn't nothing. And in fact, other studies have found that these same things may mediate effects on child outcomes. These are all important factors. We focus a lot on how these interventions affect the outcome of the child without factoring in that autism affects the entire family. And an ideal intervention or group of interventions would help everyone involved not just relate to each other, but decrease stress and reduce anxiety and improve outlook. I'm not going to talk about interventions without mentioning a new study that came out using a video-based tool for parents to help identify early signs and symptoms of autism. Not everyone may agree with me, but screening for autism and early detection is very important. The earlier kids are detected, the earlier they can be enrolled in different services and begin to better understand their own autism. The family can also start making accommodations faster. It's crazy to think anyone would be against early detection because it may stigmatize someone or put them into some sort of dangerous intervention earlier, but there it is. The tool of interest is called Versa, and it was developed through a collaboration with UC Davis and Washington University School of Medicine, who used families with an infant sibling to validate it. VERSA stands for Video Referenced Infant Rating System for Autism, and it's a web-based application. It took videos during different situations in the clinic that the researchers had accumulated over the years 
these situations were of infants who either went on to be later diagnosed with autism or who didn't get an autism diagnosis. They focused on key targets of social communication behavior anywhere between six months and 18 months of age. The parents looked at them side by side. So usually each of the kids would be doing about the same thing since they were in a structured clinic setting. One had autism and the other didn't. They started out with over 300,000 video clips and then narrowed them down to 268 because they wanted to get a wide range of behaviors in the videos. And you can imagine not all of the 300,000 videos were all that great. They didn't want the features of autism in the clips to all be obvious. They didn't take a child, for example, that was heavily stimming and compare them to a child that wasn't. They wanted to get a wide range of behaviors in the videos. They had clinicians rate the presence and absence of different social communication behaviors in these different situations on a 10-point scale, one being the least social and 10 being the most social. So the ones that were rated a 3 or an 8 were used. The parents in the study had to make a forced choice on what their own children looked like. They were shown two scenes and literally asked, which video is more like your child's interaction with you on a typical day? On each trial, the video on the left played automatically, followed by the video on the right. And of course, sometimes the left was the one with autism and the one on the right wasn't. And then they switched, at which point the viewer selected the one most like their child. Based on how they answered on that question, a next set of videos were presented. So as I mentioned, the parents in this study either had a child with autism and a younger sibling, or they didn't have any child with autism already. The authors acknowledged that most of the people in the study who helped validate this were from those who had an already existing child with autism. So the study needs to be done again in those who didn't have a child with autism, or at least a larger group of them. The analysis looked to see if they could accurately describe their infant siblings' behavior using videos that were presented. Again, they did it at 6, 9, 12, and 18 months of age. The study has been going on for a while. You can tell they followed these kids from 6 months of age to 3 years of age to confirm a diagnosis. So this finding was after many years of long, hard work. I have to say I was struck by the ethnic and racial diversity of the study. About 36% were Caucasian, 42% were Hispanic. That's a lot higher than in most studies. Parents could start making accurate comparisons of their children at about 12 months, meaning they could kind of tell if their behaviors looked more like the kids with autism versus those that didn't. But it really didn't become significant until about 18 months of age. Basically, parents could tell the difference but really 18 months is when they might be used in a wider setting if it's confirmed in another sample. At 12 months, they weren't quite sure, but at 18 months, they really seemed to get it. Not perfectly, but good enough to be considered to be used on a wider group of people. It might be used online for families across access to different providers, racial and ethnic backgrounds, and background language. Really, probably the only thing that needs to be translated are the instructions. This way, kids across the spectrum can get access to early screening tools, making early detection and early referral to intervention a greater possibility. We're really looking forward to see what happens in a wider group of people, but this seems to be very, very promising. And it might actually be used in pediatricians' offices or other care settings so that people can see for themselves without having to answering questions what autism looks like. Thanks for listening this week. 
and I hope to see you next week.